Hey, welcome back to Crimes and Closets. This is Christy in my closet in St. Louis. And this is Beth in my closet in North Carolina. Happy Monday, Beth. Happy Monday. How's it going? Monday, fun day. It's good. Yeah? All right. Well, yeah. that's good. <laughs> good that it's good. <laughs> Things are just rolling along, you know. No news is good news. I know. My house is finally quiet, completely mm-hmm. quiet. No kids. So we're we're roll- shaking and rolling, rolling and shaking. Not- <laughs> See, we're doing great. <laughs> doing fantastic. It's- <laughs> Anyways, um, do you have any news or anything? No, we don't have any I, news I have no tonight. news. No, okay. nothing is happening. That's what I'm saying. Wow, no Patreons, no nothing. Gosh, where no. are you? People? No, I'm yeah. <laughs> well, we do have a tagline that we're going to oh. play at the end of this episode. I don't know if you guys remember. If you're long-time listeners, you do. We used to have people record themselves saying our tagline, and we would stick it at the end of some of our episodes. And we had a lot coming mm. in at one point, but we haven't gotten one in forever because we really just haven't mentioned them in forever. Right. But mm. we got one from Casey, and so we're going to play Casey's tagline at the end of this episode. So stay tuned to hear this cutie. Woohoo! Yay! Thanks for sending that in, Casey. Yeah, thank you. Those are fun. Well, I have a quick little story for you. Okay, good. Because <laughs> Emery and I were watching Dateline last night, as per usual. Right. <laughs> Pretty much what we do every night. Like, sometimes, I mean, I love watching it. Don't get me wrong. But every now and then I'm like, do you want to watch something else? Like, because there's other shows that we have. <laughs> we watch started. Murder all the time. <laughs> yeah. And literally, Emery's like, murder? Murder? Yeah. Like, he'll literally say that. And I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. So anyway, so we, we've just been working our way through all the datelines. Like we're back, like we started like with the most recent that's in our library. Uh-huh. We're back to like season 25, I think right now. What's this? What's it on now? Well, I don't know. I feel like it's in the 30s somewhere. Okay. Um. So anyway, we just keep going. If, if there's something on there that we're like, oh, we know that one or we, or I've watched it and made him watch it for one of these episodes, which happened a couple of times, but anyways, we skip it, but whatever. So last night we're watching this episode and I totally know that I have at some point seen this probably like when it was on way back when it was originally okay. on, but I just was like, oh, I don't really remember it. So let's just, you know, watch it again. And it was a Pinellas County oh. story, mm-hmm. which is Florida. Yes, which is where we I don't know, right. Right, where we lived in Florida. And so they were talking about St. Pete Police and Clearwater and Indian Rocks Beach and like all these places were like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And this lady was a teacher there and like, I'm like, holy cow, did I like know who this person is? Right. Anyway, so we're watching, watching, watching. And it's about this lady who shoots and kills her ex-husband. Her story changed a million times. Initially, it was like she he didn't she didn't know he was coming in the door, and she shot because she was taught by him because he was a police officer. Somebody ever walks in this house, you shoot to kill. You don't care. Like they don't need mm. to come in this house. So she thought it was intruder. Shoots him. Then her story changes that she knew it was him, but he raped her. And like, anyways, it's a oh very like crazy kind of story that goes around in circles. But anyways. The defense team, so her lawyer, they don't think that she's read her Miranda rights in the car when she's put in cuffs. And because of there's video, but the uh, sound is off, so mm-hmm. they didn't hear it. And the police officer testified that he did at that moment, and what she said was, and he's not in the like video, but she is. It's like facing her in the mm-hmm. back seat. And what he says is, I read her the rights at that point, and she said, yes, I understand my rights. That's how she responded. Okay. So they brought a lip reader in okay, to see if they ever saw that statement come out of her mouth. Okay. And I knew the lip reader. <laughs> Stop. I fought with her. She's a, a teacher of the deaf, and she's actually also deaf herself. And... Anyway, and she reads lips, and she, I was like, Emery, that's Cindy. <laughs> like, how cool is that? I was taking pictures of her. I'm sending her a message. Like, I was just going to well, say, did you write her? You wrote, well, because I also – I taught with more her daughter than her. Mm-hmm. Um, and because her daughter's also a teacher of the deaf. And anyway, and so 
I wrote her daughter and then I was like, I'm going to write Cindy too. And so it's like, guess what? We're going through all these datelines and look who I saw. And so she wrote me this morning and she's like, oh my gosh, it's an experience. I'll never forget. It was so great. How do I go back and find it? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. You have to ask her for me if she ever met Mr. Morrison. Yes. He was talking to her. He was sitting next to her. Yes. That's why I was like, it was, oh, I forgot to mention that part. It was a Keith Morrison episode and she's at the computer and she's like, telling him about what she sees she now she admits that she didn't see everything that she said because like if she'd turn or whatever like she could only see when Mm -hmm. she was fully on the camera so she's like so i don't know if she said it in one of those other moments but i never see her say interesting words so anyway and he's sitting right next to her at her computer when they're talking so yes she met keith morrison (laughs) i don't even know what i would do i know i would hug him embarrassingly and cry I'm sure, probably I'm sure. I like, wonder if she did she probably would because she's totally like that she'd probably be like can I give you a hug <laughs> oh my gosh she's the sweetest lady I would not world. be that mine would be like hysterical fangirl <laughs> like I would embarrass myself 100% and I'm okay with it that's fine yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. um that's crazy I love that yeah. And I totally like in that moment, like when I finally saw, I was like, oh my gosh, I feel like I remember when this happened and like hearing that Cindy did this. Blah, 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 like, okay. And anyway, but it was so many years ago that right. I just forgot. But anyways, you should You'll watch have that to one. send her this too. <laughs> I know. Right? This little episode so she can hear. Yeah. Well, anyway, I just thought that was really fun and exciting and cool and whatever. And it I'm totally is that I've also never done this case just because it's Pinellas County, but I know, I know. Anyway. listen, Pinellas County is in the news right now for some reason when it comes to like podcasts and stuff, there are, it seems like every podcast that I, I don't listen to that many, honestly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the two that I listen to have been doing all these Pinellas County cases recently. No, oh, that's interesting. And I just <laughs> heard this one podcast. I'm going to have to try to find the name. It's not one we would cover, mm-hmm. but it made me think of you because you have a bird. This couple, he, I can't, I think it's he kills her. He, husband kills wife or wife kills husband. No, husband kills wife. That's what it is. And they had a, one of those big giant par- parrots mm-hmm. and the parrot like remembered the argument that they were having and, and mimicked it. it and repeated it over and over and over again. And you can hear and does like a female voice and then a male voice. It's one of those really smart parrots. I can't think of the name, but like you can hear the distinct voices. The parrot is like parroting what he heard and you can hear the distinct voices and they use a recording in the Dagon trial of the parrot. Oh, that's amazing. Testifies against the murderer, essentially. That's amazing. Isn't that crazy? And yeah. you can hear the man or the whoever it was that got shot, you can hear them say in their voice, don't shoot, don't shoot. Yeah. Oh, man. crazy. I kind of want to listen to that now. I know. It is real. I'll have to find it okay. and send it. But like maybe just do parrot. I'm sure there's only one. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Where probably. the parrot like de- testified. Yeah, probably. Wow. Cool. Wow. Yeah. I don't have anything cool like that in my current case that I'm about to tell you. Okay. Well, that's a, that's, I believe you. <laughs> it is a whirlwind. Okay. So, anyway. All right. Well, let's do it. Ready for it. Okay. I'm ready. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Okie dokie. I hope you're ready for this one. Okie dokie, Smokey. Okie dokie. Just came back from Wisconsin, so my I was like, gonna accent. say, yeah. Some I didn't know Wisconsin, but I knew there was an accent in there somewhere. 
Well, it's funny because we always, usually the word we use is boat because we'll be like, you want to go on a boat ride? and then they also use those little like paper boats for like you know meals or not meals but like you know a snack you know those little like red and white things oh yeah like the hot dog things they call them bolts (laughs) (laughs) all right be like hey buddy you got any bolts (laughs) and end scene yeah okay (laughs) So this one was recommended by our friend over on Instagram, Paige. Paige. Thank you, you, Paige. Thank you, Paige. It has taken me a while to get to it for various reasons, but I finally am doing it. Um, This is the story of Terry Gents. Okay. Terry Gents was from Western Springs, Illinois, which I did not look up. Shockingly. Since it's right there. Like, I was going to say, you're not, you're, that's over your way. I know. So I'm actually surprised that I didn't wonder where, cause I've never heard of Western Springs. I'm actually looking it up as I talk. Um, but I've never heard of it. And you'd think if it was like really close, I would know where it was. Let's see. It is near, well, kind of like West of Chicago. Okay. So that's probably why I don't really know. Cause like Chicago is like yeah. five hours away. So I would probably haven't. Anyway. Okay. Okay. She was born in 1957, so that would make her 66 years old today. And as the subject of this week's case, it is a bit crazy that she made it to 66. Oh, okay. So that means that that she is a survivor. Yes. Yes. She is a survivor. Oh, which is coming up for us in September over on the Patreon. That was my next thing is, as you all know, we do Serial Killer September over here on this feed, which will start next week. But over on the Patreon, we do Survivor Stories to kind of even things out. So today's case is going to be a little bit of taste of that to wet your whistle to see if you want to go check it out. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. There we go. (laughs) So the other fun thing about this week is that I have a book to give away. And it is a very large book. (laughs) Oh, it is a large book. Um, it's like 710 pages. Um, and it's not like this episode won't be a total spoiler of the book, you know, cause sometimes it's like, well, we re- read the whole book and we gave you most of the information. So if you're winning it, you're just reading it to like kind of read it for entertainment. And anyways, mm-hmm. I did not read this entire book one okay. cause it's so long and, um, due to outside circumstances, I needed to do this case before I was able to tackle the entire book. So um, there's so much more. And plus, even Mm -hmm. if I had, honestly, I would not be providing every detail that's in this book because it's just, there's a lot, there's a lot more detail in the book. Mm -hmm. And so go ahead and try and win this book so that you can read it. And then maybe you can tell us about all the details. There you go. (laughs) The book is called Strange Piece of Paradise, and it is written by Terry herself. Cool. Yes. It chronicles the vicious attack on her and her friend, and then her journey back to the scene and her investigation on who did this crime and why they got away with it. Oh, no. There you go. Another spoiler. Uh, It's unsolved. Or maybe I should say there's just no justice served because I personally it's solved, but they, nobody has paid the price for it. So. Okay. Okay. Terry is a very determined and driven person. She was accepted into Yale university. Whoa. And would start the fall of 1975 at Yale. When she arrived, she was assigned to a quad on campus, which I'm sure I don't have to explain it, but basically it's like four rooms and You have roommates in each room and you all share this like common area. Yes. And I really love the idea of that because I did not have that in college. Oh, really? No, we just had individual rooms. There was no rooms with, I mean, it was an old hotel. So the rooms were like really small. Uh Um, I mean, some of them were a little bit bigger, but anyway. So I just, the thought of like having that many people all right there that you could like get to know intimately Uh right away or like freshman year. Mm-hmm. just seemed like a really neat idea. So yeah, I wish I had that. So, okay. One of those people for Terry was Avra Goldman. Avra was just the kind of person that Terry would want to be friends with. 
And the two became just that. They were buddies all through freshman year and then became roommates sophomore year. So, I mean, yes, technically they were roommates, but they weren't in a quad anymore. They got like a room together. They had a really good group of friends that they loved to hang out with. And one day in the dining hall, this large group was hanging out and there's just like multiple conversations going on until everyone kind of like drew their attention to one that was happening at the end of the table. And a couple of people were talking about how they'd gone on this bike centennial in May mm-hmm. of 1976. Have you heard of that? A bike centennial? Yeah. Yeah. Only because or I kind of know this. Case. Bike centennial. <laughs> yes, but only because I kind of know it. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, for those people who have not, like, anyways, heard of it, because I hadn't until I heard of this case, it was a bike ride essentially that celebrated the 200th anniversary of anniversary of America because it was in May of 1976. Clearly, we were July of 1776, but close right. enough to years. Right. <laughs> um, And a group of bikers came up with a bike ride across the country. They put together a route that would take people from Virginia. I think it was, I think it was Richmond. Could have Mm -hmm. been somewhere else. I can't remember. To Oregon in about 82 days. The title, the total mileage would be approximately 4,200 miles. And it would bring you, I know, right? It would bring you through 10 states, Virginia, Kentucky, Illinois, Missouri, Kansas, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, and Oregon. You'd travel through 22 national forests, two national parks, and 112 counties. Mm. I could not even imagine riding my bike for 82 days straight and 4,200 miles. Like, I pretty much like two days straight. I'm done. Like, <laughs> Oh, my gosh. I think that's even a lot. I'm like yeah. to the end of the trail and back kind of girl. Right. And when I do get <laughs> on my bike, it happens so infrequently. I mean, I have a Peloton, mm-hmm. but... When I do get on my bike, my butt hurts. Like, yeah, it does. For days after that. I couldn't they imagine like padded pants. Did you know that? <laughs> yes, I did know okay. that. But I yeah. still feel like my butt would hurt because it yeah. hurts for like days. And I can't imagine like getting back on that hurt. It'd be like blistered, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. And then like you're in the woods, which like we just don't recommend. Yeah. I mean, yeah, for some of it for sure. Yeah. And I mean, they did make this trail and they have guidebooks Mm -hmm. and like, anyway, you know, so there's a lot of them, I'm assuming. Right. It was, um, I think the original one, like the inaugural one was like groups of 10 or 12 bikers at a time or no, four. Now I can't remember, but there was groups of bikers that they would group together. So it was very organized, but Mm -hmm. then it was just like, well, here's the information on how to do it. And you could just do it whenever you wanted. It wasn't like organized all the time. You could mm-hmm. just be like, oh, I'm going to get the guidebook and I'm going to set out and go do the bike centennial. Mm-hmm. So anyways, so they, as they were, this group was sitting there talking about it. Everybody was like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Like it's an amazing thing to do. And so as a group, they decided to like, okay, we're all going to do this this summer. Like, let's go. Let's do mm-hmm. it. Well, slowly, but surely, over time, one by one, everyone dropped out of doing this okay. <laughs> bike ride across the country. Everyone except, of course, Terry and Avra. They continued to talk about it and plan for it throughout the year. They researched and ordered bikes, sleeping bags, a tent, all the things that they would need for this trek. And like the guidebook would also tell you campgrounds, parks mm-hmm. that you could camp in, hotels along mm-hmm. the route, all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. you kind of had everything in a way planned out if you were to take that certain mileage each day when you went. Okay. So, okay. So anyways, they decided though um, that they and some other bikers had made this decision too, to take the route instead of Virginia to Oregon, Oregon to Virginia from West to East, because okay, I, I'm guessing, I, well, I think that some of them said that going in that direction helped you ease into the elevations and summits. Like it was like slightly easier out West than it was in the East. So you, I don't Mm -hmm. know, something like that. I would think no, because gosh, the mountains out West, I would have thought that that was Mm -hmm. worse, but whatever. They had decided that it this was the best course of action. So they decided to start in Oregon. And you're closer to home when you finish too. Cause to Harvard, you said, right? Yale. 
Yeah, Yale. so they okay, would be yeah, on the yeah. East Coast. She's from Chicago, and um, Avery was from Massachusetts. Okay. Your favorite place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Impossible to say. <laughs> so, yeah, they would end up back towards – and, I mean, it would take them pretty much almost up to when school started, so maybe they would even then go straight to school. I don't know. Right. Makes sense. I don't really know what their plan was, honestly, but – Okay. So I also assume that there would be some training involved because, I mean, clearly you run like a half marathon or marathon, you train. You're running, uh-huh. riding 4,200 miles. You probably need to get your butt calloused a little bit yeah, so that you're not hurting when you <laughs> right. <run. laughs> so anyways, but I did hear from one source that they were not training very uh-huh. much, which would be hard. However, I do know that they went for some sort of training ride about a month before they planned to go on this journey. So while they were still in Connecticut, which is where Yale is, mm-hmm. they did a ride. I don't know how many miles they did that day, but they did a ride and camped in a local park or campground. That night they had this like eerie feeling. So when they set up their tent, instead of setting it up where it was like typical setup, where facing like where everybody else would be, mm-hmm. they turned it around and like set it up backwards. So it was like okay. facing in the opposite direction you would expect it to face in, I guess. Okay. So during that night, they were awakened by someone standing over their tent and they could see the person's hands like outside of their tent, likely looking for the entrance since it, oh, they were expecting it to be in the front. That's but creepy. Turned around. So since the tent was backwards, they couldn't find it. So anyway, Avery yelled loudly, leave us alone. And the person quickly left the area. So assuming that there were several other people close enough to hear them yelling and draw their attention, that scared him or her away. Mm-hmm. So, oh my gosh. I would, that would be the day I quit. I know. I'd probably be like, yeah, no, we're not doing this. Nope. <laughs> I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> um, so anyway, likely them turning it around saved their lives that night. But. Absolutely. So this really freaked them out. And so then at that point they made the decision that, okay, we are only staying in those suggested areas and official campgrounds along that route. We're not going to like all of a sudden decide to stay on the side of the road or mm-hmm. some random place. Like we're going to stay where other people are. Yes. Good. So at some point during the year, Terry went home on break to Avra's house in Massachusetts. And although both sets of parents were concerned about the two making this trek, they supported them. During their trip to her home, Avra's mom asked Terry to take very good care of Avra while they were out there on the road. And this was a promise that Terry had no problem giving her mom. She was like, of course, obviously I will do that. Mm -hmm. So the two girls, 19-year-old Terry at the time and 20-year-old Avra, were set to meet in Chicago in June of 1977. Avra would travel there from Massachusetts, and then the two would get on a Greyhound with their bikes and all their gear and make the three-day voyage on the Greyhound out to Oregon. Okay. While on this bus, the two became friendly with a young married couple, Mark and Kathy Rennenbach. The couple were also planning to take the bike centennial route, except their plan was only to take it as far as Colorado. So they weren't doing the whole thing. Okay. They talked about how excited they were and eventually decided they were all going to take this journey together. Okay. Which is a smart idea, I guess. Yep. They arrive in Oregon and make their way to the starting location, which is in Astoria, Oregon. Uh I'm going to stop real quick right there for a quick side note, because Beth, do you know the importance of Astoria to me? (laughs) No. Why? The Goonies. Oh, (laughs) you were just there. Yes. So that's the town where all of the houses that the kids lived in. Mm-hmm. So they filmed there. That's where yeah. all the houses are. So if you go there, you'll and see all of those houses still. That's so neat. Goonies yes. never say die. Exactly. They never do. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I was close to it. Like you mentioned, I was close to it. I was like 30 or 40 minutes away. Or maybe it was 50. Well, you but saw anyways, the rock. I did. That haystack rock is where we, we stayed right outside of that. But a story was like less than an hour away. And it was Goonie Lake weekend, anniversary weekend. Oh, how so fun. I was like, oh my gosh, had I known, I would have totally gotten up one morning and been like, I'm going to Astoria. You guys can sleep. I'm going to go check out what's going on in Astoria. Yeah. I know there's some sort of festival going on up there. So anyways, I was super close when we were there and I didn't go, so I'm so mad. Anyway, back to the case. Okay. okay. 
Unfortunately, Mark and Kathy had shipped their bikes and they got lost in transit, so they were not going to be able to start the same time as the girls. Oh, darn. I know. So Terry and Avra woke up early one morning, the morning of June 16, 1977, for their momentous bike ride. They started down the coast of Oregon. That night, they set up shop on a camp- campground. That was in their book. Uh-huh. Um, sorry. On day two... June 17th, they continued down the coast leisurely until they met back up with Mark and Kathy because they had oh, gotten perfect. their bikes and they started the trek. Okay, I feel better now. Yes. The girls had to pick up their pace a little bit, clearly, since Mark, Mark and Kathy caught up with them after not oh, being able to start right. at the same time to keep up with them. But they were like, okay, we can do this. By the third day, June 18th, there was a little bit of tension starting between Terry and Avra. Terry was not sure why, but she could just feel it because Avra seemed to be connecting more with Mark and Kathy and somewhat avoiding Terry. They rode about 60 miles that day. And at some point, Avra made a comment that, I don't know if we can make it to Virginia. (laughs) Okay. She's kind of like me. Day two, done. (laughs) Like, right. You made it one more day than I think I would (laughs) have. Yeah. So Terry was a little bit still. I know. I mean, considering like they went 60 miles that day. I don't even know what they went the first two days, but probably a lot. So Terry was surprised by this and also a little bit unhappy because like for her, that wasn't an option. We're making it to Virginia. Mm -hmm. We're going. Right. So anyway, this kind of journey takes a toll on your body and there's not much information on day four in the book, but they clearly continued their ride. Day five, June 20th, they're going to ride about 70 miles, and it was along a fairly flat road in Willamette Valley, which also is special to me because that's where I love my Pinot Noirs are from there. Oh, okay. Yes, specifically Willamette. Um, So that night, they checked into a hotel, and it was very exciting to them because they actually had a bed to sleep on. So they go shopping that evening, I guess, and the girls bought the same shirt. They were kind of big on having similar outfits. I'm sure like your best friends, you're like, we're going on this great thing. We should wear the same shirts this day and what, you know, so whatever. So they buy the same shirt and on it, it says, or dash Y dash gun, because they had been hearing stories from residents in Oregon about how to they have to correct outsiders from saying how to say the name. Of okay. Because or- people will be like, Oregon or not Oregon, they'll say. But it's what do you Oregon. Say? Oh, Oregon. <laughs> yeah. Oregon. Oregon. I think I yeah, say Yeah, but Oregon. I mean like Oregon. I mean, I say it quickly, Oregon. So right. it's like, it is gun, but it's good. Anyway, I don't say Oregon. Like they right. get mad at apparently. So, okay. I'm safe. <laughs> okay. So day six was June 21st, and they had to make their first real ascent on um, to a summit. So they had to muster up the strength to get through that day, and they did almost quit, but they made it. Day seven, or at least made it partway up. They still had to climb about 4,000 feet on day seven, which was June 22nd, to reach the summit, and they started very early that morning. Lots of switchbacks on this particular part of the trail, and when they reached the top, they were able to kind of coast downhill for a bit, which felt really good. And they decided to take a break at one point to get some ice cream in a small town. As they're laying in the grass, eating their ice cream, the two girls discussed not wanting to keep riding with Mark and Kathy because they felt like they were slowing them down Uh. and they could just use a break from them for a little bit. It was actually Mm -hmm. mentioned in the book, like the thought of sleeping in the tent and listening to them Mm. was making them nauseous. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, they're a young married couple, so you Yeah, but like the fact that they have endless energy, it seems, is really shocking to me because I I don't even have any energy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So just before they hit the road again, they told Mark and Kathy that they were only going to make it a little bit further down the road and not going to make the goal mileage. Well, I guess actually – now, from what I'm remembering, what I read, Mark and Kathy were actually planning on going a little bit further and staying kind of on the side of the road. So that was another reason they decided not to go with them because they're like, remember, we said we weren't going to stay in random places right. on the side of the road. So Stick let's to just the book. stay, like, not make it the last four miles that they're making it and stay in this park that mm-hmm. is on the path. So, okay. 
So they're like, we're not going to make it. You go on without us. And they said, okay, so then let's plan on meeting the next night in a town called Mitchell. I'm like, okay, great. We'll do that. So they rode a bit further together, and then Terry and Ava broke off and stopped at a park called Klein Falls State Park, which was just along the Deschutes River, which is just slightly north of Bend, Oregon. Okay. The girls set up their tent and turned in early as they had another long day ahead of them. Around 1130, Terry was awakened by the sound of a car engine coming towards them in headlights. Mm-hmm. Then suddenly, Terry felt crushed and could barely breathe. The car had run over her and just oh stopped. Oh, my gosh. Was like on her collarbone, shoulder <gasps> area. Just sitting yeah. there? Yeah, just stopped. And then the person gets out of the car and walks over to the tent, and Terry remembers hearing something being swung and hitting something softly, like six, seven, eight times. I don't know. She doesn't remember. Oh, no. She then felt something hit her in the head and then in the arm, and then the person walks away, gets back into the car. Terry thinks they're leaving, but all they do is back the car off of her and then get back out. When Terry opens her eyes, she sees a man straddling over her. (gasps) All she sees is like his cowboy boots. And then she kind of like starts to like take note going up and notices that he has lean muscular legs that are tightly wrapped by dark blue jeans. Some of these words are like literally taken from what she said because I was like, this is the way she described it. So I need to describe it in that way. She then sees two shapely forearms holding something wooded. Mm -hmm. Wooded? Is that a word? I, I think wooden. Something that's wooden. That's probably okay. what I meant to write, but I typed wooden. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> Can I ask a really quick question? Yes. So they're not with other campers? No. Okay. Because this was like a park as opposed mm-hmm. to a campground. Okay. And there was a campground not too far away, but they decided mm-hmm. to, and it, there were signs saying this park is for day use only. So they really weren't supposed to be camping there. Oh, but it was by the river and they just thought it would be okay. Like there'll be other people around, Okay, you know, but anyways, and plus you can't really, I mean, yes, they decided to stay in this like park and campgrounds, but you really can't guarantee that there's always going to be somebody else camping Sure, at the time that you're camping. So it's just Hopefully, you hope that they okay. Do. So they felt like they would be okay in this park. Okay. So Terry also takes note of a fit torso and really kind of only knows that because she noticed that the shirt was like meticulously tucked into the jeans, like no wrinkles. And so like, you know, you can see how like uh-huh. flat he, you know, whatever. This person then lifts the object that he's holding. At this point, I think she knows it's a male. Um, over her and then comes down slowly <gasps> to the center of her chest and she somewhat like catches it between her hands and realizes it's metal so like an axe oh my gosh it. Terry then says please leave us alone take anything you want but please leave us alone and this person just walks away and drives off stop it yep Terry's like Oh my gosh. Like she thought she was going to die. She thinks she is dying, but she musters up the strength to try and find Avra because she's not right next to her. Apparently she had been dragged a little bit closer to where the river is, like not far away from her, but a little closer to where the river is. And she kind of feels Avra's head and feels a hole in her skull and actually feels like brain matter when she touches her. She knows that Avra's like Avra's going to die if she doesn't get help. And so at first she tries to lift her, but her arms are like, just like dangling. Like she can't really move them. And like stuff's just hanging out of her arms. Oh my gosh. she finds a flashlight and tries to walk to get help, but her legs are also very damaged and partly broken. And then she sees headlights. And at first she's like, is this the person coming back to finish us off? Oh my gosh. Someone that can help. I don't know, but I need to take a chance. So as this truck gets closer, there's a young teen couple in the car, 18-year-old Ben Penhollow and Darlene Gervais, who had just had a little bit of an argument and they were going into the park to talk things out. They stopped because they had seen the like flash of her flashlight and she's also just standing there and they realized that she's majorly injured because she's got blood dripping from her hair and it's matting her hair down and 
So they get out and Terry's yelling about her friend, like go uh-huh. help my friend. Uh, the couple go over and pick, I think they thought maybe she was dead, but then she made like a moaning sound. So they realized she was alive. Oh my alive. gosh. So they're like, they pick her up, you know, like by the arms and legs or whatever and get her into the truck and tell Terry's yelling at them to gather all of their belongings, like get the bikes, get the tent, get the sleeping bags, everything. And the couple's like, dude, we got to get you somewhere help. Yeah. We need to leave this. And she was like, no. She was in such shock. She didn't even realize how injured she was. Right. I, I mean, I, I'm assuming that or, or she had some other reason for wanting all of these things out of there. Like, I don't want any trace of us there. What if this guy comes back and he finds our IDs or whatever? Like, I don't oh. know. Maybe that's where her head's going. Like, yeah. just take everything. She wanted everything out of theirs. So they oblige, get it all in the back of the tr- pickup truck, drive them into town to get them help. And the two girls are transported to St. Charles Medical Center in Bend. When Terry wakes up in the hospital, she's found out that she has two broken arms one of which was hit by the axe and it had severed the bone, which is why it was just dangling when she was trying to use it. Mm. And honestly, like she, the adrenaline, she didn't really feel the pain until she knew they were getting help and she could relax. And then all of a sudden, like, that's when it's like set in that, oh my gosh, how much pain am I in? Both legs were broken. She had cracked ribs, a crushed lung and a broken collarbone. Wow. Yeah. Avra was in very serious condition. She had six axe wounds to her head and Mm. needed emergency brain surgery, which lasted somewhere around nine hours. Oh, my goodness. There was a broken piece of bone that had lodged in her skull in such a way that it stopped her from bleeding out. Oh, my gosh. Right? Wow. Every time Terry would wake up, because she probably was like in and out of consciousness and would ask like, how's Avra? Is Avra okay? Basically, mm-hmm. the answer was always, she's still in surgery. We don't even know if she's going to make it through. Still in surgery. So, Anyways, finally, mm-hmm. she wakes up. They tell her Avra was out of surgery and had made it through. Avra did, Avra did lose her eyesight due to where the injuries were in her brain. But over time it would heal and her eyesight would come back. It would just take oh a little Oh my bit. gosh. This is amazing. Look, these girls were not meant to die that day. Nope. Not at all. <laughs> nope. They're totally alive. What? So Both Avra. Yeah. She, <gasps> she survived and her eyesight came back. Holy moly. Yeah. But she has zero memory of any of it. Oh. Like does not remember anything about it, which is a blessing. Like she knows she's injured and she knows the story, but she has zero memory of any of it. So she doesn't remember like getting hit by that axe and feeling that pain. Uh She just remembers waking up and having no eyesight and then it coming back however many weeks later. So there's an article in the Boston Globe where Avra discusses the incident a little bit, but not really just like what she knows, what she's heard of it. But a, and a majority of it is just how she has faith in humanity because of the people who helped save her. Mm-hmm. And also the people that are sending her like letters of encouragement and whatnot. So mm-hmm. Avra no longer speaks to anyone about the attack, including Terry. Like she has oh. refused. And over time, the two of them have lost touch, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And actually in Terry's book, The Strange Piece of Paradise, Terry even changed Avra's name to Shana. And I'm assuming it was to help her keep some sort of anonymity mm-hmm. or whatever, but her name's out there. Like everyone knows who it mm-hmm. was. Clearly she did a one interview, but she just, I guess, just felt like it was the right thing to do to change her name. She's, yeah. Book. She's protecting. Like, right. I got it. That's respectful. Yeah. So, okay. When Terry woke up in the hospital later that day or the next morning, Mark and Kathy were there. I don't know how police knew to look for them. If like maybe Terry mentioned a couple they were riding with at some point. Cause like, there's not a whole lot of detail about like, you know, those immediate like conversations right off Mm -hmm. the bat. The police, police had tracked them down to ask them questions. And the couple were like, Oh, we're supposed to meet up with Terry and Avery at the next stop. And so then the police informed them of the attack and they go straight to the hospital to check on them and whatnot. When the girls were well enough, they both went home to heal further you know, in the comfort of their own homes. Police were out to the crime scene within 30 minutes. So like by midnight, they're out there checking things out. Mm-hmm. They quick, quickly come to the conclusion that the vehicle that came in was some sort of truck with bald rear tires, 
the right front tire was also bald and the left front tire was fairly new and it had a distinctive tread pattern. Okay, good. After interviewing some people um, who had, who had stated seeing a red pickup truck in the area, or no, wait, I'm sorry. After viewing, oh my gosh, words are hard. (laughs) Words are hard. (laughs) (laughs) They interviewed people and those people had said, uh, several of them, that we saw a red pickup truck in there with this white, um, what is it, like a bed top? Like a topper. Know, like it goes over the bed of the truck, I guess. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I think it's just a topper. Yeah. Okay. And I, I couldn't remember what it was called, so I was just like, uh, bed top. <laughs> <laughs> we know what Anyways, you mean. Yeah. Also, within a few weeks of the attack, a local girl had come forward and told police to look into a Richard, quotes, Dick Dam. <laughs> so Dick Dam? Yeah, they call him Dick. His name is Dick Dam, but his, uh, you know, born oh name was Oh my Richard. gosh. Mm-hmm. All right. Oh, just wait. There's something else funny that happens with this name. Okay. She was 17 and Dick was her boyfriend. So the police bring Dick in for an interview several times. And they find out that the week of the attack, Dick and his girlfriend, Jane, as in Dick and Jane, Dick and Jane, home oh, elementary my. school teacher I, in me. <laughs> like, oh. I, seriously, Dick and Jane. There's Dick so Dick. many books about Dick and Jane. I know. It's not, not this Dick, Dick Dam. Nope, it's not this Dick and Dan. Jane. Okay, so Dick and Jane had an argument that week, and it is asserted that Dick thought Jane might be camping in that campground that weekend and went to attack her. And when he came face to face with Terry, because he initially started attacking through the tent. Uh-huh. Didn't know who he was hitting, but then when he saw Terry in the as her face, he realized his mistaken identify identity and just that's why he just picked up and left. Oh. That's what they're assuming. Okay. Okay. I mean that makes sense. It does make sense. Also, there's one other suspect that Nick got named early on, and his name is Richard Godwin. Another dick. Me, another dick. And he really is, because let me tell you, this guy is awful, awful. Richard Godwin had been arrested in 1977 for sodomizing his five-year-old niece. So I think that's why, yeah, he got like on their radar because he had just been arrested and done an awful thing. It was discovered that there was a female relative of his that he had been having a sexual relationship with. Hmm. And he learned that she was in the park camping with a boyfriend and grew jealous and went to that park to attack them. So which also was a mistaken identity when he saw who it was and realized who it was. He left. Okay. So, so they're really also, thinking the fact that this man left them alive. It was because they were like going clue. yeah, for someone. And then when they realized it wasn't, they're like, oh, shoot. And just left. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> oh, dick damn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Terry was shown a picture of Richard, but she said that he did not match the physique that she remembers mm-hmm. of the attacker that she had taken such careful note of i was gonna say she seems to remember it so vividly right in the book she actually remembers thinking like when she was describing it in the way she was she was like holy crap is this weird that i'm like attracted to this body and as this is happening like you know like that's what it sounds like you know like this looks like a good looking man right yeah yeah huh anyway but but anyways she definitely took note and she also thought it was a plaid shirt that he was Mm -hmm. wearing i don't know if i mentioned that but Okay, so Richard Godwin would go on to be arrested in 1979 for molesting his five-year-old daughter. Oh my mm. gosh. Oh. Sick man. And when he was taken into custody and they searched his trailer, they found a skull on his nightstand that he was using as a candle holder. And this skull was the skull of a five-year-old girl he had kidnapped and raped and then beheaded. I'm done. Real gem, huh? No way. Yeah. I mean, shocked we have not come across this guy as for real. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sickening. Oh, okay. He was convicted. We don't have to cover him because I'm covering him right here. Okay. He was convicted and was still in jail until he died at the age of 77 in October of 2022. He had been denied parole several times as they still believed he would be a threat to society. Yes. So he did. He gone. Oh my, he lived to be 77 though and did all that. I know, sickening, gross. Anyway, 
Not too many leads. I mean, leads did come in. People were talking, but they like really didn't lead to anything that was substantial that they could really go on to make an arrest. So by 1979, nine, two years after the attack, the case kind of grew cold. And it's not known if it was because the girls didn't live there. And so nobody was really pushing hard to get it, you know, because they left and went home and, mm. you know, went, went on with their lives the best they could. Mm-hmm. Or if by that point, after two years, they weren't very close to figuring it out. And so they just moved on because the statute of limitations for attempted murder at that time in Oregon was three years. What? Yeah. Three years? That's ridiculous. Like you can't be charged after three years, even if they know? Nope. That's not like that now, is it? No, it moved eventually to six. And now from what I can tell, it's, there's no limit to it. No, there should never be a limit. So not much is said about Ava post-attack because, like I said, she stopped mm-hmm. talking to people and she's just she doesn't remember it. So she's kind of like, I just want to move on with my life. Mm-hmm. I did try and, like, figure out where she was, and I don't know if I found the correct person, but she is possibly a doctor in the Boston area if oh, she still okay. has the same name and never got married and all that kind of stuff, which kind of makes sense because she was from Boston or mm-hmm. Massachusetts. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, and went to Yale, so we know she's a smart cookie. Right. So Terry, however, went on to be a filmmaker and screenwriter. She lived in New York City until she was 33 and in 1991 moved to L.A. to pursue that screenwriting career. Mm -hmm. When she moved, she had to downsize a bit and ended up selling because she's moving across country. Her bike, the one that she used on the journey, she kept it all those years along with the bloody sleeping bag. She did not sell the bloody sleeping bag, but she got rid of it. She had kept held on to the sleeping bag that she was in that night. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Like on purpose? Yeah. Oh. It's just like, I don't know. It was like, I don't know why she held on to it, honestly. Maybe she states in the book why, but. Trauma like, response in some way. Yeah. Who knows? Hmm. In 1992, Terry decided that she wanted to make a trek back to Oregon for the first time to the scene of the crime. She wanted to make a film about it. And so she brought a companion to film things and help keep track of like the investigation that she was going to do. Mm-hmm. And she ended up turning the whole thing into the book, which is the book I have to give away, mm-hmm. which I did not read entirely. Right. Paige, who suggested this case on Instagram, wrote us about it because she had read that book. Yeah. So. Okay. Okay. On this trip, Terry got the original police file, which seemed very thin. It was a mere 30 pages. <sighs> Terry spent lots of time talking with people from the community as this was a big deal back then and people remembered it. And she learned that so many people there had a feeling about who had done this crime. Okay. A lot of this investigation she led herself and it is documented in that book. And that is basically what I like you would find probably interesting if you read this book because it's like detailing everything and who she Mm -hmm. talked to and what they said, which Mm -hmm. it's 710 pages. So that would make for a very long episode if I were to like dive into all of that. So Mm -hmm. anyways, okay. So the people that she spoke to all seem to point the finger to Dick Dam. Dick Dam. Mm Mm-hmm. He was described by many people as just plain evil, like had that evil look in his eye kind Mm -hmm. of thing. He went on to have quite an extensive criminal background. And as late as 2006, he was in prison awaiting a trial for robbery and assault charges. So he just went on to keep doing bad things. Mm -hmm. Great. He apparently never treated women right in his life and was very abusive. Terry spoke to the girl who helped save her, who is now married, not to that boyfriend that she was with in the park, Mm -hmm. but spoke with her. Um, She also spoke to a classmate of Dick's who sat down with her and he spoke about, again, how evil he was and just had that look in his eye and he was never nice to women. Again, he recalls after the attack seeing the hatchet that in Dick's van. So people were calling it an axe, but they said it was more of a hatchet. I don't know what the difference is. Okay. (laughs) So... Anyway, I probably I don't know that, that I honestly do either, but yeah. either way, I would not want to be attacked with one. No, 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 no. It's still like essentially the same kind of weapon. So he said he saw it hanging there in Dick's van and he took it out and held it. Dick told him he had just gotten it back from the police as they had seized it after the attack. But I'm not sure why they would have given it back to him. But 
it is the late seventies and forensics were not what they are now. And, hmm. you know, they didn't have enough evidence, I guess, to prove, but also I don't even know if that truly happened. Did they really take it? He got it back. Or was he just saying uh-huh. that? I don't know. So this friend even stated that he made a comment to Dick saying that, he, I know you did it. Everyone knows you did it. And Dick's response was that you can't prove it. Cops can't prove it. No one can prove it. That is really scary. I know. To like be faced with the person that you think brutalized two people and almost killed them and like tried to kill them. Mm -hmm. And to be like, we know you did it. Like confront them in that way. Yeah. Well, apparently this guy was like, I don't know. There's a whole like chapter on the conversation with him and his wife. And he was very like, I wasn't afraid of him. I Mm -hmm. gave him crap in high school. So I wasn't afraid of him, you know, so he was just forward about it. So. Do we anyway. know, and if you're going to get to this, please shush me, did he have mm-hmm. access to a truck? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Here we go. You're okay. right on the nose. Terry also spoke to Jane, the old girlfriend of Dick's, and she shared with Terry everything that she shared with police, apparently. She even told her that the day after the attack, Dick showed up at another park and beat her and tried to drown her. So he was so- after her that day. Mm-hmm. Oh. Again, so that could back up the theory that he went to the park looking for her and it was mistaken identity. Her and her parents tried to press charges on this at the time, but the police dismissed them and said this is teenage drama and just moved past it. Drowning someone is teenage mm-hmm. drama? I need, a, I need their number. Apparently in the 70s it was. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that is ho- that's awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she like goes on, I, I want to say I read somewhere in the book that it's like she goes on to have like a 30-year relationship with this guy like on and off oh like i don't but i don't know if that's true or not you know like there was a lot Uh of rumors that were stated in this book that like said no that didn't actually happen but i don't know she did have quite because you know like um victim um what is it called gosh well anyways but you know like you're you're victimized so much by somebody you don't leave think mm-hmm. you can't leave battered all that spouse. kind of stuff. Battered battered spouse. Spouse. So mm-hmm. I think maybe that may have been the case. But anyways. So she's Jane a survivor also- of his too. Yeah, she is. Wow. Jane also remembers around the time of the attack that Dick had gotten all brand new tires for his pickup truck. He also always mm-hmm. had a toolbox in this truck bed with an axe in it or hatchet. And she remembers that all of a sudden that was not there anymore. And she told police all of this? I'm not sure if she told police that part. Okay. Or just like, uh, he attacked me me. the next day. Look at him. He's got a truck. I mean, I I don't know. I don't, I think yes, but I don't know for sure. Okay. Terry spoke to many people who had similar theories on Dick and people who had heard rumors, etc., including a nurse from the team that helped save her. An old employer of Dick's had gone on to get government positions, and he stated that he had never had issues with him when he worked for him, but he could see him being capable of this crime. (laughs) And I'm not sure if it was the same person, but an employer of him, of Dick's, also, while Terry was in Oregon, set up a meeting with Dick at a local restaurant while Terry was at another table so she could get an eye on him. And... Terry said she recognized the physique and the type of clothing and how he wore it still a bit tight and meticulously tucked in. And she had no doubt that it was Dick Dam who had attacked them that night, but she did not confront him. She did not. not. Yeah, no, I bet not. Terry did link up with former state trooper Marlon Hine and told him what she had discovered through her investigation. He reopened the investigation in 1995. However, nothing can be done. Because that was like the statute of limitations had already run out on that crime back then. Like just because uh-huh. it's changed now doesn't mean you can go back and do that. So, oh, you, I see. Yes. Uh, now this I'm a little bit confused at whether Dick had taken two polygraph tests back in '77, which I don't know. Did they have those? I think they did. Or if these were ordered in 1995. Either way, at some point he took two polygraph exams, and both were ruled inconclusive and invalid. Because Dick was on meth at the time that he took them. Right. Oh, he, I tell you what. Yeah. 
But the official report for the second polygraph, because it was two different people, stated, it is this examiner's opinion that Mr. Dam is not being truthful to those relevant questions, you know, having to do with that crime. Mm -hmm. A prosecutor in the area is also convinced that if he had brought him to the grand jury and with everything that they had, that he would get an indictment. No, no questions asked. Unfortunately, we will never know and never get justice for this vicious attack on Terry and Avra due to the statute of limitations. Terry has said that writing the book has been very therapeutic. She went through so many years of torment after this attack, as did Avra. So when she wrote this book, she felt like getting it all out Mm -hmm. and like going through this investigation really kind of helped her Mm -hmm. kind of not move on because you're never going to like forget this thing, but it just did help her. Like heal in some way. Yeah. Yeah. So if you think you'd like to win this book, keep an eye out for how to enter the giveaway on social media this week. And you will have very detailed information on Terry's journey back to Oregon and all of her investigation that she did out there. Hmm. Why would that statute of limitations not be retroactive? Because it would cause so, so much work for them. I guess. Yeah. Because then you're like talking about going back and like reopening however many cases. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing if that was the law then, when that crime was com- committed, then that's, that's the law. wildly ridiculous. I, I agree. And I don't even know if that is truly the case, but everything that I have read on this is like, we'll never get justice because of that statute of limitation. So I'm assuming that is the case hmm. that because that's what it was back then, this crime is not going to be solved. Although I think it's solved. Just knows justice for it. Right. Well, right. Well, it's not been proven, but. Right. And no. where is he now? You said something about 2006 think- he was in prison. So is he still there? I don't know. I didn't honestly, okay. I didn't look up to see. I mean, I did like Google him, but you know how many Richard Dams there are? <laughs> I don't actually. I feel like there's, there couldn't be that many. There's some. There's some more. <laughs> So I was just like, I can't, I can't like dive into try and figure, I mean, I guess I could have looked up in the Oregon like prison system, which I didn't. Yeah. Um, But I'm just assuming that he's either in jail or I don't know. I don't know where he is now. He wasn't clearly when she went back in the nineties, but then I, like I said, as of 2006, as late as Mm -hmm. 2006, he was waiting. So I hope for her that he is like, I hope that she doesn't have to worry about writing this book and him coming and like after her or whatever Mm -hmm. you know like i hope she at least has that that they both have that security that right can't come for them or whatever yeah yeah and there's like not a whole lot there's a wikipedia page there are a few articles but like other than that there's not a whole lot of information out there so really Mm -hmm. the only place to get it is this book yeah yeah well i'm glad that she wrote it and it was healing for her and that she's seems to have taken her power back mm-hmm. by yeah. confronting all of this and going yeah. there and all that stuff and right. literally solving her own attempted murder essentially. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, wow. Well, thanks for doing that. Yeah. And thank you to Paige for writing in um, the survivors. We just were saying, we were talking about how serial killer September is so difficult uh, and heavy and yes. that we like to balance it out with survivors. But like, hi, difficult and heavy. Yeah. <laughs> like, They're not better. They're so hard too. And it is also interesting to me how, I don't know if you've made this correlation, but a lot of our survivors are also connected with like serial killers. Not necessarily in this particular case, because it doesn't seem that he went on to kill anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, going forward, but like definitely a career criminal and a bad dude. But so many of our survivors right. are serial killers. Yeah. Like you yeah. can't just keep That's killing true. people. Something's going to go wrong and somebody's mm-hmm. going to live and you're going to get caught. And I just want this to be your public service announcement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not that we have any serial killers that listen to us, but <laughs> <laughs> Lord, I hope not. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Could you imagine that? That would be be my, don't, that's like my worst nightmare. Let's, we don't even need to talk about that, but. Well, I know you literally told me as soon as the Lisk killer was, was caught, you're like, okay, you can cover it now. Cause he's not out there to come find us. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I know. People are like the Zodiac killer. You guys should do the Zodiac killer. I'm like, never, never, ever, ever, ever. (laughs) 
scary. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, or even like the Delphi thing. Not a serial mm-hmm. killer, but like, no, I'm not covering mm-hmm. it. We don't, we don't know where he is. <laughs> scary. They didn't figure that one out? No, they did. But I'm just, when oh. bef- just recently. Oh, okay. I was going to say, I feel like that one just happened too. Okay. Yeah, but before then, when people would write right. in and say for us to do it, I was always like, Mm-mm, not it. Mm-hmm. No, sir, sir. My guy over at True Crime Garage wrote a book on that because they were like really, really invested in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were really invested in that case and he wrote a book. Huh. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Well, you can cover him now too. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, but yeah, if you like these survivors, we are starting our Survivor September like in a minute over on um, Patreon. So it's a great mm-hmm. month to start because it really does kind of um, – they are heroes, people that survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Terry included. So yes. thank you so much for diving in. Stay tuned for that book giveaway, and we will definitely get that mailed to you. That's always nice little gift that we get to give you guys for listening in. And come find us on social media so that we can interact with you and you'll know about that giveaway and any other giveaways that we do. And let us know what you think about this survivor. And we appreciate you. Happy Monday. And always remember, the world is scary. People suck. Hide in your closet. Remember, y'all, the world is scary. People suck. Hide in your closets. <laughs>